Hey there dudes and dudettes, and welcome to Extreme Movie Reviews, where the takes are as extreme as literally any product you could have bought in the 90s. It's totally time to set your Tamagotchis down, pick up your pogs off of the floor, sit back and relax for a radical time with your host, Steve. And today we are going to follow the traditions set forth by our elders and continue to look into the Friday the 13th franchise during the month of June, a tradition which began two years ago, when I released my ranking for the entire franchise as well as a review of my favorite and least favorite movies. Last year, we broke out the s'mores and we began at the beginning with parts one and two. This year, we will get to part three, and I will not be doing part four as that movie deserves my full attention for a review, something that I cannot give two reviews at this moment. Friday the 13th Part 3 was released in 1982. It's a horror, it's a thriller, which is rated R, and it has a runtime of 1 hour and 35 minutes. Weekends are a good time to escape to the woods. Unless the weekend begins with Friday the 13th. Because 13 is an unlucky number. But out here, so are 1 through 12. Because these are Jason's woods. And nobody leaves them alive. Friday the 13th, part 3. In 3D. Jason, you can't fight him. You can't stop him. And now, you can't even keep him on the screen. Friday, the 13th, part 3, in 3D. Now, when it comes to killing in Jason's woods, Jason will come to you. Friday, the 13th, part 3, in 3D. A new dimension in terror. It will scare you. Like, do you recommend the movie? The plot synopsis for part three goes something like this. Picking up a day after the carnage of part two, we follow a married couple who owns a local store. They become Jason Voorhees' next victims. The following morning, a group of unsuspecting teens and a mid-aged stoner get together for a weekend at Christine's family cabin, where... Another mid-aged man is awaiting Christine's arrival. Despite a run-in with a local biker gang, it's a dark history that looms over Christine's time at the cabin. It doesn't take long for old ghosts to reappear as 
one by one, everybody goes missing. I had to get as creative as I could to not just say, 18s go in, one comes out. There is very little storyline in this movie, and for reasons we will go over, I do find it hard for myself to outright recommend that as a standalone film, you watch this movie. That is, unless you have a 3D version and you have 3D glasses to watch it, or you could maybe watch it in IMAX, as everyone seems to say that the movie hits different when in 3D. Built different. A by now familiar name to us, Steve Miner, is the director of Part 3, and you can hear more about him in the previous review on Part 2. So that leaves us with this age-old question. Out of five stars, what would I give this movie? I think that the answer depends on when you catch me, as I have received varying levels of enjoyment from this movie, and upon my most recent feelings... For this review, unfortunately, I'm at an all-time low on part three. Probably I would give it like one and a half stars out of five, but I think I may have gone as high as two and a half or maybe even three previously. So I'm going to settle on a 2.1 out of five stars for Friday the 13th part three. Do you think the fans and the critics gave it some props reviews or what? Let's begin our review of the internet's reviews with the critics. Good critics' reviews, to be specific. Starting off with my dude, Ken Hank, who, by and large, I feel like we are always in disagreement with one another on movies. I would guess that 75% of the time, we disagree with one another. Ken, of Mountain Express, said, Without the 3D, it's nothing to get excited about. I find it hard to believe the 3D would make this movie much better, but he is not the only one to say as much. I looked around for materials to make a cheap at home set before watching the movie a second time for this review, but I couldn't find a blue permanent marker to do that, so I will plan on doing that before re-ranking the franchise at the very least. The highest rated review that I could find through Metacritic came from the New York Times from Janet Maslin on August 13th of 1982, the day that the movie was released to theaters. The first paragraph of her write-up stated, Even without the 3D technical breakthrough, that allows Steve Miner to send an eyeball flying right out of the victim's socket and into your lap. This movie would marginally be better than the first two in the franchise. How she wrote that sentence has me questioning how much influence the 3D really did have on her experience. She goes on to express that, A... This was the most professionally done 3D work up to this point in time. And B. That the gimmick goes stale and then you are left with, well, a Friday the 13th movie. Something I do find interesting is that she says that fans familiar with the franchise would refer to Jason as, quote unquote, the fellow with the hockey mask, dot dot dot, which is strange considering this is the first instance of him having a hockey mask on. I'm not sure if advertising often used a hockey mask between movies two and three that that look already became pop culture prior to the release of this movie. What is that all about? I went and I looked through a bunch of images of like the posters that would have been up for their advertising. And as far as I can tell, that would not have been the case. Um, You know, him having that mask on in those posters, it appears they were heavily using an image of like a silhouette of Jason. although. 
the trailer. It is almost exclusively him in a hockey mask. Well, let's move forward from that. Janet felt that the movie was better at teasing the audience than the first two movies, and she seemed to appreciate some of the amusing parts and thought that the acting was better than in the first two. Oddly, she outs the final girl in her review. I suppose that could be a product of the final character not quite being a trope yet. And to be fair, it is obviously the girl that it is from the beginning moments um, when we first meet our group of teenagers. My thoughts on what Janet liked will be evident within due time. Negative reviews. Diego Galen of El Pais from Spain said, No originality to speak of here. And despite this movie creating the most important part of Jason's image, it's impossible to argue with Diego, and many of the other reviewers will go on to state something similar. Aside from this next review, they're pretty much all the same. People stating that the movie is nothing new, or people stating that the 3D aspect is all that the movie had going for it, and that it's not worth watching on video. So apparently, I really need to get myself some 3D glasses since I have access to the 3D version. Let's wrap the critics up with this statement, which makes no sense whatsoever, from Steve Crum of the Kansas City Kansan, where he stated, Let's see. Thirteenth times three equal sign at least 39 beheadings. I, uh... I, I think that was a swing and a miss of a joke about it being the same old, same old. Question mark? On to some audience reviews. I'll just call this a neutral review. Silas J gave it two out of five stars, and he or she said, Of the first four movies in the series, this one is the best. It's also my favorite because it is without a doubt the craziest film I've seen in my life. I feel like it fits for the series. I'd rather my Friday movies be crazy than boring, and that's why I love it. If we're being honest, it's terrible and awful, but I had a great time, so yeah, it's better than the first two. Not to mention, there is just about the most hilarious character arc I've ever seen, and I find it completely ridiculous. But I love it. I don't know why only two stars from Silas, given what he has to say about the movie. I included that because it's not what you'll hear out of my mouth. So if you are someone who has tried getting into this franchise, into the series, and you couldn't get past that second movie, there is your encouragement to go forward one more movie. Give it a chance. And I think we know what the negative reviews will say, and I'll have all of the negative stuff covered myself anyways, so I'm going to go through two good reviews. I'm including them because they are bringing up something that may not directly be stated by myself, or maybe things that I hadn't thought of previous to seeing these reviews. So first is from Gaionic, I don't know how to say it, V, who gave it three out of five stars and said, It's not a good sequel to the first two movies. Friday the 13th is supposed to be fun, and this movie isn't very cool. But I like the final chase that gave me a little chill and shows how Jason is a monster. The second is from Tyler R., who gave it three and a half out of five stars, and he said, Back again and grew to seven foot overnight, apparently. Now that is something that I will be bringing up. Tyler continues, Although I digress, it's a blessing in disguise because Jason is genuinely terrifying. 
So much so that even the acting would scare Jason away and does us the favor of reading the cast one by one because you learn to hate them by the dumb things that they say and execute lines. Well done, my boy. The main thing from that is just that they found Jason to be terrifying in this movie, which I don't agree with, but it does help set a new image for him, which gets used going forward, a much larger and intimidating figure. It's a good call. What do you think the ratings look like? I will take my own guesses as to what the ratings are prior to revealing the actual ratings for two sets of Rotten Tomatoes ratings and the IMDb score. Important factors that I am keeping it in mind are the fact that it is an older movie, it is a horror movie, a slasher flick at that, and just my general knowledge of the relative popularity both within the Friday the 13th fandom and beyond. I'll start with the Rotten Tomatoes scores, which in simple form are the percentage of folks who gave it a thumbs up. My guess for the Rotten Tomatoes audience score is 37%. My guess for the Rotten Tomatoes critic score is definitely going to be less than the audience score, and I'm going to go with 23? No, no, I'm going to go with 17%. For the IMDb score, which is more of a rating of how good people think that the movie is versus whether or not they just at least liked it, the IMDb score is on a scale from 1 to 10. My guess is a 5.2 out of 10. In my experience, people that don't like this movie still don't hate it, but the majority do not find this to be one of their favorites. And outside of the horror community, well, it probably doesn't get too many ratings due to its age. So I'm thinking fours through sixes will be dominating the ratings, and 5.2 was that magical number I landed on. So let's see how I did, and we can start right there with that 5.2. The official IMDb rating as of May 2022 with a grand total of nearly 53,000 ratings, is a 5.6 out of 10. I almost guessed lower than that 5.2, and the main thing that I got wrong was that it was actually the 5 through 7s that dominated the ratings. Nearly 60% of all the votes were a 5 through 7. And I misunderestimated the amount of 10s that it would receive, which was 7.5% of the ratings, Not, not shabby. Interestingly, this movie shows very little difference between demographics broken down by both age and or sex. It's pretty much steady eddy across the board, all ages, all sexes. On to the Rotten Tomatoes scores, and now I'm a little bit nervous about my guesses, so first let's do the audience score, which I had guessed 37% for. The official Rotten Tomatoes audience score for Friday the 13th Part 3 is 42%. Oh, what a relief. For the critic score, I didn't bomb with my guess of 17%. In fact, I was still too high. The official score was 7%. That is only out of 28 reviews. And the audience score was from over 50,000 ratings. So there you go. The critics hate it. Audiences don't really recommend it, but they still gave it a 5.6 out of 10, a.k.a. they don't hate it. Hey, dude. Sorry, it's me again. I was just wondering... Could you tell me more about the movie? The movie starts off by rehashing the previous film slash storyline because that is so important to this franchise. It's not even a bullet-pointed recap of the previous movie. It's actually only like the entire final battle. After around the six-minute mark, the title cards come popping out of Mrs. Voorhees' skull's eyes to this funky beat.
After over seven and a half minutes, the movie opens up on a stormy night to what looks like the main lodge at a lakeside resort. It is, in fact, a grocery store and home. Some lady with curlers in her hair yells at her husband, Harold, before returning to watching the news, which is reporting on the findings of the murders that happened in the previous movie. So, we know that we are picking up directly after those events on one of the four possible timelines for the franchise within the first four films. If we go by the one laid out in part one, it would be June of 1985. Very literally, it could be Friday, June 14th, 1985. If we go by part four's rewrite of dates, which is fictional, it, uh, it doesn't actually exist this date, it would be Saturday, June 14th, 1984. Here's timeline number three, as it actually exists in the real world, would be Thursday, June 14th, 1984. And timeline number four, if we take part four's rewrite of dates and make it nonfiction, it would be Saturday, July 14th, 1984. Harold is a lazy nincompoop, so his wife Edna is now outside taking the laundry off of the laundry lines when we catch a glimpse of not Harold walking past. And Edna catches a glimpse of not Harold walking very close to her. Jump to Harold in his grocery store feeding their pet fish. What's the matter, Lionel? Aren't you hungry? Come on, it's good. Hey, hey look, I'm eating. With some heavy tones of piano, we see a mystery man walk past the window behind Harold, who enjoys the taste of fish food. They fly eggs. Harold leaps up as it appears a customer must be misbehaving. Obviously, this is Jason, and he is about to be hacking Harold to pieces. And the catches in here, she's gonna make a fur coat out of you. <laughs> well, we've been tricked. It's just a rabbit. Harold then walks around with the rabbit as he eats small portions of the food that is supposed to be sold to customers, will be sold to customers, but now with less food in them. So at this point, we are pretty okay with Harold dying. They have proven to the audience that he is eh, kind of trash. <laughs> A hand grabs Harold by the shoulder and whack, axe to the face. Didn't I feed you enough for supper? The doctor said you have to lose weight now, didn't he? You know, I'm trying to help you, but you just keep sneaking food behind my back. What am I going to do with you? And would you put that filthy animal back where it belongs? Come on. Harold brings the rabbit to a wheelbarrow with dirt. I guess the rabbit's house, home, mainstay. Harold looks in a cage and, with a sting in the soundtrack, nearly gets bitten by a snake, but once again, he avoids death, and he runs inside past his wife, who cracks a joke that's actually pretty funny, but apparently it wasn't a joke, question mark, because when we change scenes, Harold is now on the toilet, which... Uh, happy coincidence for her joke, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I don't know anything. But um, 
I know this much. I am getting tired of this cat and mouse game that this movie is playing with us. So I'm, we'll just fast forward by letting you know what we all know when we met these two. Jason kills both of them. And that happens at about the 16 minute and 30 second mark of the movie. And with a fade to a bright sunny day with kids playing baseball in the road, now the movie actually begins. And I only say that because that beginning portion, it, it feels very obviously like what it is. It's just a scene with two unimportant people who are about to die. Some of our main characters arrive in their quite 70s looking van, three of them heading towards the White House on the left. Hey Shelly, come on out and meet your date. Bring her to me. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea. Sex, sex, sex. You guys are getting boring, you know that? Now, you hear that eerie music playing, and it is strange that the movie does this because we know that there is a fourth person with them, Shelly. We see him creeping up from behind with a prop knife in hand and a clear mask over his face. So, like, why use the music here? We're clearly not going to think that this is Jason as the audience. We know it's not him. It seems overzealous of the creators, and it's just... It's not going to be the first or the last sign of the creators underappreciating the audience's intelligence. <laughs> Shelly scares them as he stabs one of them in the back. It's a prop knife, remember? Damn it, Shelly. Why do you always have to be such an asshole? I beg your pardon. I'm not an asshole. I'm an actor. Same thing. The main takeaway is that Shelly is a prankster. He's a very unconfident character who uses humor to mask his lack of self-confidence. But the execution isn't very good throughout the movie, with several comments like this. But you gotta quit doing those things. Now I got your date, didn't I? Didn't I? Yeah. So don't embarrass me. Just relax. Be yourself. Would you be yourself if you you look like this? I'm not saying there aren't people like this in the real world, but... I'm pretty sure the movie wants us to root for Shelly. The thing is, when someone is this outright needy with comments like that, it is hard to like them and to root for them. And unfortunately, that is the case for this character for a lot of people. And I'm pretty much in that group, although less so than some. And he does have his defenders, which on the right day, or depending on how extremely someone hates this character, I will defend the character, Shelly. A little bit. To be honest, he really is the only memorable character out of this group of teens. Shelley, and I quote his date, are meeting for the first time, and before this boring interaction can move any more forward, there is some excitement as they notice that their van is on fire. Without any dangerous music accompanying the run to the car, the urgency is at an all-time low by the time that they open up the doors and they look in the back of the van, only to notice two people sitting there, a much older than the rest of them, Mr. Chong, we'll call him, because he looks like the character Chong from Cheech and Chong, and a their-aged Ms. Chong, because I don't know her name either, and... They're dating, and they're smoking everybody's weed, hotboxing the van. They're not strangers, though, so it's cool. They're with the group, which gives us a group of six teenagers and one not-teenager. They're now on the road, heading somewhere. We find out that one of them is pregnant, 
Her name is Christine. On the road trip, Shelley is being weird and not really endearing himself to his date very well, but she is not outright revolted by his behavior either. The weird part is a briefcase slash portable trunk of sorts that he keeps peeking into, like there's like a live animal in it, kind of trying to keep it closed and not letting others see into it. He states his whole world is inside of this brief trunk. Just prior to some cop sirens lighting up right behind them. Everybody in the car does the best to eat all of the weed and predictably the cops fly right on past them pulling up to a very familiar looking lakeside grocery store and home. So we know now that it is Sunday, July 15th, 1984 or Sunday or Friday, June 15th, 1984 or Saturday, June 15th, 1985. Eerie music and the sight of a lifeless body being loaded into the back of an ambulance gives some of them the creeps. Then a dead rabbit along the roadside gives us the creeps. And then their van has to come to a complete stop as it is now on the dirt roads. And the reason is that there is a man laying down having a nap in the middle of the road. The town drunk, the harbinger of death, the crazy Ralph of this movie holds up. Wait, what is that? I found this today. There were other parts of the body. That's an eyeball! Oh, oh, let's go. He let's said go. He, he wanted me to have this. Yes. He wanted me to warn you. Look upon this omen and go back from whence ye came. I have warned thee. I have warned thee. They disperse and we see a sign for Higgins Haven which must be their destination. Check it out. As they arrive, someone is looking out of the main cabin's window, and we hear the Jason music, even though this someone is so clearly not Jason. Christine immediately separates from the group as they go to the water. She's going to go and take her luggage bags into the house. We should be afraid for her life as we heard that music get played whilst not Jason was looking upon them from this building. Right. She enters cautiously for some reason, no reason really, and Jason's, well, I shouldn't say no reason. I guess we will learn of a reason, but it's it feels weird because we don't know that there might be a reason that she is being cautious while walking in. Anyways, Jason's tune is once again playing when two flanneled arms come out of nowhere and they grab her, laying a big kiss on her. Wait a minute, Rick, this guy kissing her, he's like 50-ish? I ended up looking up his age, and he was actually, I can't remember exactly, about 27 years old, but I stand by all of my future mockery of him looking far too old for this role. In his defense, it is a handsome old look that he has. It just, I would have cast somebody else to date a, I don't know, 18-ish year old chick. Anyhow, it becomes evident that she has a history with this place and with him. She hasn't been there for two years, and apparently her and Rick haven't seen each other for those two years. Question mark, though, because then he says last summer, so I guess they haven't seen each other in a year? I think it's just a mistake. Which does at least make things from the previous conversation seem less drastic. At least possibly brings, you know, fewer questions into regards to how young she would have been when they started a romantic relationship with one another. I'll be honest, 
It's only when I pause the movie that he looks 50. In action, he looks sort of like a 30-ish year old who could pass as older or younger. It's confusing. After more false scares, uh, disparaging comments from Shelly, odd things happening and totally unnecessary and over-the-top pranks from Shelly later, and we have been introduced to the layout of the property. We've gotten to know a bare minimum of the dynamics between lovers. You get it. Typical setup things that one does in the first act of a movie. Wait, hold on a second. I take it back. After getting another good look, this old guy looks a solid 40, even in motion. The relationship between the two is odd, and I think it is referenced that he is or had been the handyman for her father. So, yeah. Shelly and his date head to the local convenience store while we are reminded that something bad happened here to Christine. Meanwhile, at the convenience store, a dangerous biker gang picks on Shelly's date and him too. As they leave, Shelly backs up into their motorbikes on accident, and he attempts to drive away. One of the members stops them and breaks their front window before they can fully escape. After they have escaped, once they're off to the races, they... Shelly comes to a complete stop, he grows a pair, he comes back, and he double taps the bikes, end scene. It doesn't fully make sense why, but Rick and Christine head out after those two get back from the cabin. It does make partial sense, because Rick is upset about his front car window being broken. It doesn't fully make sense, because it seems like we missed some sort of argument, or probably more accurately given the context, a non-meeting of minds between Christine and Rick. I believe something was cut from the movie, which would have helped to make more sense of things in this little short interaction. At this point, twice, they've shown someone else who is on the premises spying on the teens from a distance. As one of the girls grabs some towels from the van for her and her partner going swimming, we see a pair of jeans and high-heeled boots on the other side, and it appears that the biker gang won't be letting bygones be bygones. Gas can in hand, once the girl is out of sight, this biker that we saw his feet of, he barks, literally, and then one of the other guys is just around the corner with two more gas canisters. These are not like one-gallon canisters, they're five gallons each, I believe, so biggins. The two guys, they siphon gas uh, to use to burn down a barn, while the chick, the third biker, she goes off on her own and she explores the inside of a nearby pole barn, one which looks quite familiar. We cannot be positive, but it looks similar to where that mysterious figure was spying on all the teens from. After nearly tripping on some Something? Nothing. After nearly tripping on nothing, her face uh, almost goes right through a pitchfork. This chick should probably be a little more careful during her exploration or she might die. I would put the clip of her dying right here, but they don't show that. Just the, the aftermath of her. And that was one of the guys discovering her body and his following death. The last biker comes across both of their bodies a moment later and he grabs a nearby machete. Machete? 
and I would play the clip of his death, but it too is rather lackluster, especially in just sound without seeing the action for him. Visually, you can't see the results here, but there is a bit of brutality as after this unknown figure, which is Jason Voorhees, knocks the dude out with a punch, he falls over, and then Jason takes the machete and smashes three times, presumably the guy's head. It also, honestly, my first thought is actually that it's like his arm. It's brutal is the point. It's just, you can't see it either. So I guess good job by Jason acting. And that's the end of the Biker Gang saga as we reach about 45 minutes into the movie. Structurally, I'm going to have to get back to you in the technical ratings because something about this, it just, it feels off at this point in the movie. I will quick mention, you can feel the influences of the first two movies in this movie with a lot of the things that they are doing. Also, the stalking from a third-person point of view feels more Michael Myers-y than Jason-y, because it is not from the killer's point of view like in the previous movies. Instead, a figure is always like in the shot, and, you know, instead of being a point of view shot. And it doesn't have the music accompanying him every single time. They're trying to do something different, and it just, it doesn't work to the same effect as the first two, in my opinion. That will be a knock to, I'm just going to say the production as a whole. I may wrap that in with an overall deduction to the score for the editing of this movie. So hint, I will have an overall deduction for the editing. Another aspect that you can feel which is borrowed in this movie is Christine's character. Her relationship feels very similar to that of Alice's with Steve in part one. And her character is very much molded in a similar fashion as Ginny from part two. But Christine is less independent and she is not as resourceful or smart, though she is not a complete damsel when it comes to the finale. Back on track, for the first time in a long time in the movie, we see the two stoners. They're passed out because, of course. Then, Shelly gets turned down, very politely, might I add, and like the kind and misunderstood Shelly that he is, he does accept it gracefully. But then he creeps on her from inside while she hops out for some fresh air. She walks out of view, and it appears that Shelly is going to go off to mope about his failed advances. Meanwhile, another couple is hooking up, and we finally learn what's up Christine's butt. And as that came out of my mouth, I am realizing how poor of a choice of words that was, but I'm going to keep it. I was, uh, it was not intentional for this upcoming clip, by the way. You're right. I should have told you everything a long time ago, but I couldn't. Well, look, Chris, you don't have to if you don't want to. I want to. I want you to know what happened so you'll understand. Everything is so clear in my mind as if it were happening right now. I don't know if you remember, but when you dropped me off that night, it was very late. I knew my parents would be waiting for me, but I didn't care. We had such a good time. The minute I walked in the door, my parents started yelling at me and cursing me. We had such a big fight. My mom slapped me. That was the first time my mother had ever hit me. I couldn't believe it. I ran out the door and into the woods. I wanted to punish them. So I decided to hide out all night. I thought I'd get them so worried that they'd be sorry for what they did. It had been raining and the woods were cold and wet, but I found a dry spot under an old oak tree. I guess I fell asleep. All I can remember next 
is being startled out of sleep by the sound of footsteps. I was sure it was Dad, so I just sat up and I listened for him. But the footsteps stopped. Then there was this cracking noise behind me. I turned around. And standing there was this hideous looking man. He was so grotesque, he was almost inhuman. He had a knife. And he attacked me with it. I was so hysterical, I don't know how I was even able to think, but I kicked the knife out of his hands and I ran. He ran after me and he caught me and he pulled me down to the ground. I was kicking and screaming and yelling, but it didn't do any good. He dragged me along the ground. I blacked out. For all the grief that I have given the old man, he has not been portrayed as a bad person, and I assume that he is not supposed to be 40 years old, so... whatever. As far as Christine's story goes, well, that's actually really heavy, and I can't help but feel like the monologue from the Gremlins was inspired by this scene, as it feels a bit out of place here with how goofy the movie has been for most of it. It's an odd tonal shift that neither fits the movie nor the franchise, just like in Gremlins. Mr. Chong wakes up, and he heads out to an outhouse. After a minor scare, he runs into the Miz, and they think they see Shelly headed into the barn, so they go to follow him in order to give him a quote-unquote taste of his own medicine. However, clearly to us, it's not Shelly going into the barn. After a false scare, they leave the barn, and as they are walking away, a figure enters the frame from behind them, inside of the barn. Obviously Jason. Cut to Shelly's date, who is very likable, if you haven't picked up on that yet. She has her own scare as she is sitting at the end of the dock, and a hand pops up out of the water and grabs her foot. <coughs> it's been a long time since I've seen this movie. It was paused as I was you know, writing this current note that I'm speaking out. So I'm going to go ahead and guess that it is Shelly playing another prank, and it is not Jason in the water since we literally just saw him out in the barn. This isn't uh, episode, or part eight, is it? <laughs> That'll teach you a valuable lesson. A beautiful girl like you should never go out in the dark alone. <laughs> Not only was I correct, but it's Shelly with the harpoon in the billiards room. No, no, no. That's an attempt at a clue joke there, the board game. I'm not sure if it landed or not, but... What I actually wanted to point out here, and somehow didn't make it into that joke, was that Shelly has a hockey mask on. It is the first appearance of the legendary hockey mask and the harpoon in his hand. Not the specific one, probably, but it will also make for a legendary appearance in the next film, or part of me says it's in part eight, maybe both of them. And I cannot give this this movie credit for the machete, but they did at least keep that trend going from part two. And really, they should get credit because this is the same director for both parts two and three, where the machete, um, you know, first showed up in two and then continued here. So I guess credit. Damn it, Shelly. Why do you do these stupid things? It was just a prank, bro. Stupid things. 
have to. No, you don't have to. I just want you to like me. I do like you. But not when you act like a jerk. Being a jerk is better than being a nothing. I never said you were nothing. You don't have to say it. I could tell. And this is why people don't like Shelly as a character. She told him she likes him, and he still pouts and whines and runs off. So if you've ever seen a slasher flick, you know what's in the cards for Shelly at this point. He has now proven that he is unredeemably unlikable, and he's gone off on his own. Plus, with our crystal ball, he has the hockey mask with him, so... Yeah, in case he wasn't unredeemable enough, think of what this next line means that his character is up to. Immediately after his last stunt. You guys doing something I shouldn't see? No remorse in him, I tells you. Zero remorse. Ah! False scare again. Talk about desensitizing an audience. Cut back to his date, quotes again, I guess. And as she hops into the water to fetch his um, wallet, which, well, first, she has from their run-in at the convenience store earlier, and secondly, she accidentally threw in the water. And I mean that as a slight to the acting, or the stunt work, if you want to call it, on the wallet drop, because her character didn't throw it, it slips out of her hands. As she is retrieving the wallet, we see Jason Voorhees come walking out of the barn, looking like he will look for the rest of his career. Hockey mask acquired. She assumes that it is Shelly again, so she isn't immediately frightened, but as he raises up the harpoon gun and aims it at her... Hmm. Deborah and her dude finishing up. She hops in the shower for another false scare. He walks away doing a handstand like a goon. And shortly afterward, we get one of the most nut-splitting kills of the franchise. Do the logistics on your own. Guy doing a handstand gets killed by guy with a machete while doing said handstand. Dipper apparently does not hear his yelp for, not really for help, but out of pain, I'm sure. And apparently that was a one-shot kill. So she goes looking for him when he stops responding to her. She's, you know, still trying to talk to him from the shower. Also, apparently no blood evidence was left behind for her to notice. That is, until it comes dripping down from above her onto her copy of Fangoria magazine that she decided to read. Not to mention, she didn't hear Jason hurriedly somehow get that dude's body up into the rafters. One of those instances in this movie where the logistics aren't working out, it's kind of, they do a really good job of setting up a lot of stuff, and then they, and then they suddenly don't towards the end of the movie. What? Where 
Where's this coming from? She looks up, and the visual is appropriately gruesome, while a plank of wood prevents us from seeing the money shot. Down the middle. Before we cut back to Christine and the old guy... The last death was a callback to Kevin Bacon's death. It is not poorly done, however, nor is it to the level of part one. Slight knock to the production design. Christine and the elderly man are, well, let's do a head count. We started with seven in the van and then the old man was here already, so we have eight people. Stoner and Ms. Stoner are still alive. Girl and boy down. Shelly and his quote date are dead. So that should be it. So four down and four left. Well, there's also that unborn baby on board. Cut to Mr. Stoner, Chong. I guess I've changed his name now. So Mr. Stoner is making some popcorn. Miz joins in. The power goes out. And now Mr. has to go down to the cellar. Just an absolute standard slasher setup. In the cellar, there is a dead skunk fake scare that I don't understand. Like how the creators did such a bad job with this scare. So we see the skunk well for a solid two beats before the sting in the score occurs. Another scare for the character, but not for the audience. A trend I think that I have alluded to once or twice and has happened in a few other instances as well. Knock to the sound design at least. I probably should hold more technical sections accountable for that. Cut back to Ms. Stoner, and Shelley shows up with his throat slit, but still alive. Unable to say anything, he cannot convince Ms. Stoner that this isn't makeup that he has on. It's a boy who cried wolf situation for him. He reaches out for help as she turns away and isn't paying attention to him, and in the most high school play death, his life comes to an end. That is a knock to the acting, if you didn't pick up on that, for Shelly. Cut to Mr. Stoner, and he is electrocuted to death via some assistance from Jason with that. Cut to Ms. Stoner, and the lights are flickering as he's disturbing the uh, force of the electrical flow. And as she tries to summon Shelly to his feet, uh, you know, because she thinks he was just pulling a prank, uh, she realizes that it, it was not makeup, so... She obviously freaks out. She runs upstairs to where the lovers were, and um, it's just dead bodies up there. The hot end of a fire poker ends her horror. Cut to Christine and her geriatric mate. Red flag after red flag, so they are on heightened alert as they begin searching around the cabin, sometimes separating, but Christine has the whereabouts to tell him to hold up before going outside without her. He doesn't listen. Or maybe, due to his advanced age, he doesn't hear her. Regardless, he goes outside without her. And in an actually horrifying scene and, like, situation, if you put yourself into it, we see him struggling and being held back by Jason, his mouth is covered, and he's just 
feet away from Christine as she is calling out to him. With no response, she retreats indoors, and as we cut back to him, Jason, um, well, Jason squeezes his head and his eyeballs, they, uh, they pop out, comically so, not in a gruesome manner at all. Another knock to the production design. After discovering a flooding bathtub with bloody water, Christine goes outside to search for Rick one more time. Oddly, she is not terrified by the bloody water bath situation or just this whole situation and takes for her to be outside looking for Rick and a body to just happen to fall right in front of her before she runs back inside. Now, finally terrified. The doors won't stay shut due to the wind. The windows are just hilariously beating back and forth. She's locking each of these up as they happen one after another, just continuing a stream of anxiousness. And then she cowers and she begs for Rick to save her before he gets thrown through the window right in front of her dead from the head squeeze. The hunt is on. She runs. He chases. She hides. He searches. She stumbles across a body. She screams and makes her hiding spot known. She cowers in fear, but at uh, the last second, she, she grabs a knife from said body. Then she swings said knife terribly and wildly at Jason down the hallway she loses the knife in Jason's leg, and he turns that knife back around on her and throws it at her. This is why knives are not great weapons to bring to a fight. She falls from the second floor. She doesn't run away. Instead, learning from the ways of Ginny in part two, she sort of doubles back and plays on expectations of Jason that she would be running away. She grabs a nearby log, and as Jason comes out of the place, not suspecting her to be there, she smashes him in the back of the head with it. Then she runs to the van, which we know isn't about to go far. It stalls on a bridge, which they did focus on earlier in the movie. We know that the bridge planks are very, very loose. As she successfully flips the switch for reserve tank gas, those planks come back to bite her. I have to give the movie some credit. They did do a decent job of setting things up in this movie, and honestly, probably they did too well. There is a bit too much of a focus on setups and payoffs, which lead to a lot of unnecessary scenes. Now that I think about it, I believe this is another instance where they let the audience in on something that the character was not in on. I think we know that the planks are giving way before she flips the switch for reserve gas. Like, we sh they show us a scene of the tires kind of pushing the planks out and getting um, wedged between planks that are wider apart now. Another instance of, like, tension that we should have as the audience, but they ruin for us. Um, because we know that that van's not going anywhere as she flips the reserve gas on. So, I don't, I'm not positive uh, if I recall those, the order of events there correctly. So, I'm not going to, like, knock the score down for that. I'm not going to go back and watch it. Back on track. Christine gets away from the van plank incident, and she is obviously going to be on foot now, running again. She reaches the barn, and I can't hold this in anymore. I think that this Jason looks terrible. I hate his look, especially when you consider how he just looked two days earlier. But more so, he just looks oddly bulky and lazy, like not bulky in a athletic or intimidating way. I feel like I could run circles around him. I'm built it's, um, different. It's not intimidating for me. Um, and to be, the actors, like, he's not built like that. They fluffed him up for whatever reason to bulk him up. But he was already an athletically built guy, just a little scrawnier. And we'll get into that. So, you know, I'm, they wanted to create a look. I just didn't think that they quite got there. And once they have more bulky actors, it, it, then I like the look. I, I like the idea of the look. I don't like the execution in this movie. So Christine's hiding again, and he is searching again. Tension is, I would say, finally building at this stage in their little dance. The soundtrack is working. 
and as it reaches its tilting point, the tension, she falls from a beam above, and her butt, from what I can tell, knocks Jason down, which gives her a chance to run away again. With some quick thinking, she sets up a trap in the loft of the barn. With a wind-up, she gets to a a solid 20% strength strike right onto Jason's head with this shovel to knock him out. And then she wraps a rope around his neck, which has been alluded to two or three times in the movie. She drops him out of this door that's at the top of the loft. And this is why I said earlier that we get to know the layout. I brought that up for a reason. With all of the calling out of situations and whatnot, The layout or the property and the buildings on the property was similarly an important factor to the creators of this movie. And the reason I would assume is so that it doesn't feel like, Oh, of course there's just a big wide open door up there for her to toss Jason out of and be hanged. We have an understanding of the purpose of said door thanks to an earlier scene. And we can quite accurately visualize her entire journey from the house to this location because we are familiar with the layout of the premises. This knowledge of the location allows the audience to call out how things may go along the way, which is good and bad, but probably, I would say, more of a good thing than not. We know how these movies go. The movie is still going, and it's been a bit since... um. You know, we think that Jason has died. We're thinking there's going to be a second uh, Jason moment where they have a second fight, right? She gets the big old barn door open. For a moment, it looks like there won't be a standard second fight. They they do a good job with the timing here, I guess, giving you just long enough to be like, oh, he's he is actually dead. But right when you're thinking that, his arms go up, he lifts up his masks to reveal to her that he is the same guy who attacked her in the forest two years prior. Then, an actual surprise works, I guess, as one of the biker gang guys is still alive. It's it's the third one that went down. So we assumed that he would be dead because of how that scene ended up, but he comes, he tries to save Christine. His hand gets turned into a nub by the machete, I believe, and shortly later, his, I assume, face does too. This distracts Jason for long enough that Christine gets an axe, and as Jason turns around, she plants it right into his forehead, where there will forever be a mark on his mask for the rest of this franchise. Continuity, folks. Then, calling back to both of the first two movies, she heads out to the lake where a canoe is awaiting. She hops on into the canoe, and we go from that night to the next morning. Now, the question is, How does this movie end? The previous two have had confusing endings, one of which worked quite well, and the other kind of ruining the movie. Back to this movie. Two more ineffective scares, ineffective for the audience, occur. Like, they would be scary if you were her, but they're not for us. And she sees Jason's face is staring out at her from inside a building. We see him start to come after her, and then when she looks back, Jason is nowhere. But then Mrs. Voorhees jumps out of the water just like Jason did in the first. And then police arrive and it's later, I guess. And then a hysterical Christine gets put into the back of a cop car to be driven off. And I mean hysterical, like she may literally have gone insane. I'm quite sure, like not even quite sure. She's gone insane is the implication here. 
One nice thing about the ending is that they showed Jason laid out where he had been struck originally with the axe, eliminating much of the confusion that the previous two films created with their was it or was it not a dream type endings. As they zoom in on Jason's body, it's tough to tell, but it appears like it may move a little. Some light breathing is possible there. And then that's followed up by a sting in the score right as a bubble comes up from under the lake. Well, crap. Maybe it isn't so cut and dry of an ending. Maybe she didn't go insane. Cut to the ending credits with that same loony, disco-rific intro song. Out of place. Don't like it. I would like to point out that we never did find out what is in Shelly's suitcase-slash-briefcase thing. I assume that's a cutting room floor casualty. When they had to cut stuff from the movie, we get left with these bits and pieces of storylines that go nowhere, and we miss out on other bits and pieces of storylines that do matter. Unfortunate when this happens to movies, but, uh... Naughty editing, I guess. What's your favorite scene, dude? I am doing my best to go back to the first time that I watched this movie and think of the moments that kind of stood out to me then. Because, you know, I just didn't really enjoy the movie this time around. And I feel like Jason sticking the needle into the back of the grocery store owner's neck and when Shelly faked his death were two that definitely stuck out to me more so then. And I want to say the reason for the needle in the back of the neck It just got me excited for the movie to come as, you know, as we changed gears. And Shelly's fake death kind of tricked me, but I was on to him, so it's just a memorable moment where it's kind of in limbo, like, is he dead? Is he not dead? I think he's faking. It's fun the first time around. Another is uh, when Shelly double taps the bicycle gang's bikes, even on repeat watches, like, you're rooting for Shelly to be better and more confident, so it's a happy moment for his character. You're excited for him. But then it's followed by feeling a little bit left down at how ineffective of a double tap it was, but still proud of the kid. Uh, if he just wrecked those bikes on when he came back, this would probably be the single best moment of the movie. Hmm. Let's see. Uh, the girl in the blue bathing suit does have a nice butt, but I can't give that the honors here. So, handstand sky death, um, that's pretty solid, but I think it's a little bit too telegraphed, so I don't know that it really was like a big shocker when it happens. Um, the biker gang themselves are just like this silly group that has this over-the-top, almost West Side Story-like feel to them, or really they reminded me a lot of the motorcycle gang from the original Mad Max movie, which I reviewed in one of my, um, messing with media episodes and so you can hear what i think about them there but either way there is something fun about that it's just like a time capsule of cinema when watching it now in general i think a lot of movies from the 70s and into the 80s represented gangsters and most notably futuristic gangs or like biker gangs in such a way that comes off as truly silly now and i doubt was ever too threatening it's very theatrical Man, the pickings are thin for this movie. My favorite scene. I think I've settled on it. Here it is. Drum roll, please. The opening scene at the grocery store. 
It's very stupid and silly, and I think it hurts the pacing of the movie. But I could probably go for a full-length movie with just those two characters getting lucky and not dying from a bunch of close run-ins with Jason, and then other random things that, you know, could go wrong, like a snake biting you, just going wrong, but not to the extent of them dying. Almost a Tucker and Dale versus Evil type of deal, but with these two characters, so with less likable characters than in that movie. That's it. I'm sticking to it now that it's been said. But you got some honorable mentions there, too. That was totally dope. What do you say that we get down in technical, if you know what I mean? Let's get right to these technical ratings, starting off with the writing. I only really have one good thing, so let's get that over with. Edna exclaims that she can't find one of her needles for yarn work, and Jason kills her with that missing needle. It's a nice sort of call-and-response type of deal, making the audience go, Oh, that's where that needle went. Into her head. They do foreshadow a bunch. I've talked about that. Positive credit for that. But I will be docking the movie in another section because they overdid it. On to the bad items. I have five of them. The first is that it's a jumpy beginning. As I mentioned in the walkthrough, it's not until at least 17 minutes in before we get introduced to the main characters. It's... It's a long 17 minutes. Number two, with interactions like when we meet the gang and Shelly and his date meet for the first time getting sidetracked by the couple that's smoking pot in the van and then the group thinking that it's on fire, it's just obvious to me that the writers didn't always know what to do with this material and or with the characters and at times, you know, where they've written themselves into. Not good that I could feel that in the movie. Number three, how does Shelley get in the water without, quote-unquote, his date noticing? The logistics just don't add up. I mean, you would, it's a small lake. I'm more so pointing this one out than um, actually docking the writing for it because this movie needed more movie magic moments like these than it had for pacing reasons. Number, I don't know, what are we on? Four? For the first time out of the movies that I've reviewed in this franchise, I can truly say that the characters feel like archetypes. And I don't think that's true, especially for part seven. It can't be true, but um, let's put it like this. They're barely even archetypes in this movie. You get to know a Cliff Notes version of them. Barely. I think there's about zero character development. Shelley probably gets the most character development, and even that gets tossed to the side, and he doesn't redeem himself in the end. I think that he would be liked a lot more by audiences if he had apologized to his date before he got killed. Christine, I guess, overcomes her past, but it's not necessarily earned, or like the story just isn't set up to where that's what I'm thinking about during her final chase where in the first two films, the final girl's conclusion is very heavily front and center. It's, it's just that. The word conclusion says a lot there. It's, it's a conclusion to their story, and I'm not invested in this story because it's like, I played you to clip. That's all that we know of her backstory, and it's, it's terrible, but they will learn later. They cut stuff out from it. If it had been brought through the film a little more, then, you know, then there's a conclusion to a storyline for her, but it's not there. Uh, number five here. I said that I would get back to the structural acts in the walkthrough, and after watching the movie for a second time, came back to write this note, and, you know, I was able to pay more attention to um, that. Uh, 
I don't know. I still have trouble breaking down like where the movie shifts from its first act to its second act. And I think it's around that 45 minute mark where I brought it up in the walkthrough. It's just it's it's not a strong structure. And that entire beginning makes it take so long to get into the story that it just feels weird. For me, at least on this viewing, like once I'm into the movie at the 45 minute mark, then I think that it goes by at a good pace. Of course, most of that's the final chase. But once we get to the third act, it's, it's good. I think the script was written better than what we ended up with on screen. But it was not a great script, no matter what. So if I'm rewarding the foreshadowing in full, then I'll start at a 7.5 and then start docking away points from there. There's those structure issues times three with a little positive on the final, down to a 5.5. Writing themselves into corners, awkwardly getting out, down to a 4.5. Character issues bring me down to like a 2. Then I'm going to give them some relief, thinking that some of those issues were born out of post-production. So, oh, three. Three out of ten for the writing. Cinematography. First note is... Me, I'm going to run through all of the uh, 3D gimmicks and just tell you what those gimmicks were. And then I want you to tell me how many of them actually sound interesting. So here we go. Number one, intro title card and credits and stuff, words popping out at you. Number two, the end of a wooden pole. Number three, a TV antenna. Number four, a snake, but you can very clearly see the wires. Number five, an arm reaching to turn the lights on. Number six, a mouse walking on a stick. Number seven, a the needle through Edna's neck, but it's like pre-stab, I believe. Number eight, a bat. Don't even remember that. Number nine, a joint being passed to someone. Oh, the bat when it, um, not the animal bat, like a bat, the end of a bat. With the kids are playing baseball when we finally start the movie. Number 10, that, number nine, a joint being passed to someone. Number 10, a wallet being tossed to someone. Number 11, the biker gang chain to the window glass break moment. Number 12, a yo-yo times three, I believe. Number 13, a pitchfork near biker girl's face when she falls. I think that's supposed to be in three. I'm not positive on that. Number 14, the wooden side of a pitchfork. Number 15, a pitchfork, the scarier side. Number 16, the wooden side of that same pitchfork again. Number 17, apples being juggled times two. Number 18, a harpoon. Number 19, popping corn, a.k.a. popcorn being made. Number 20, a fire poker that has been heated up. Number 21, popping eyes out of a head, but comically so. so not even scary. Number 22, Jason reaching out. Number 23, an axe handle, the wooden part, again, times two. Number 24, I probably missed a few. Moral being, there's a lot of 3D gags and a lot of them are inherently not good or not exciting things, in my opinion. Second note, um, they actually do one-up part two, where they do a similar um, like picture on top of picture effect, um, transposing a picture on top of a picture. They do a better job in this movie with it than at the end of part three. I think that one looks really goofy. Number three, uh, note here, those were all I could come up with. (laughs) So there is no third note. I think it is worth mentioning this was very new technology at the time. So I'm going to be giving the, this, um, section, the cinema, are we on? Yeah, I'll give the cinematography a small break here due to it being new technology. I think that kind of pushed them away from, like, excellent filmmaking. So the cinematography itself, it's not like it was bad. It's just kind of neutral, although a little bit dirty. So I'm going to make this easy on myself since I'm giving them that break, and I'm just going to call it even. It's a 5 out of 10 for the cinematography. On to the sound design. Let me start by saying that I am under the belief that this was the first time that Dolby sound technology was used. And once again, I'm going to give them a bit of a break on the scoring because of that. This has got to be the luckiest movie of all time with 
breaks for technology reasons, but um, let's start with the bad, and then I have a mixed, and I don't have any good notes for the sound design. Not like it was, once again, I mean, it wasn't horrible. The intro song is weird. The vibe is off for the franchise. It does give off a fun vibe, which, you know, that's not the worst. I mean, I have liked the intro song like once or twice when turning this movie on, but it's it's just really not a good song, in my opinion. And yeah, bad marks for the intro, the outro, and it is used in the movie once or twice just like as a song. And as I just alluded to, the main theme song is being played during the biker gang at the convenience store scene, and it's odd and out of place to hear it. It's a weird. General lack of ambiance. New note. I think this could be due to the learning curve of Dolby Audio, because I found that when I recorded the movie um, for the sound clips that I used through the walkthrough, I put the movie on very loudly, and then I jack up some of the quieter sounds from the movie in there because of some of these older movies, I guess, just don't have the best audio, or maybe partially my TV settings, whatever the case, I have to jack up some of the quieter dialogue, which also brings up some of the quieter background noises at the same time, and I was able to hear a lot more when listening to some of those recordings than I actually do when I watch the movie. There's just more going on there, so not good marks, but, you know, I'm hedging how bad I didn't like this lack of background ambient sound. My TV settings. Third note here, Jason's main theme song, not the not the intro song to this, it gets played with a lot throughout the movie, and I don't think to good effect, so bad notes there. Generally, there is some poor timing on some of these stings, uh, uses of the score, etc. Dolby sound would not be an excuse for that. I think we're on to my neutral note. I don't know if this is simply a result of the version of the movie that I own or what, but sometimes while characters are speaking, it feels off. It feels like ADR, or like the timing is just millions of a second off. Unlike in part two, however, I can hear people quite clearly almost always. I did notice one character who sometimes mumbles through things a little bit, but like I know through context of the rest of the sentence what he's trying to say, so um, it's the same character who lacks energy when speaking, so you should be able to figure out who that is. So, boy oh boy, well, it's competent sound, this isn't some backyard movie made on a little camera with no microphones, it's made by experts, we know they're going to get at least a 3.33 out of 10, and then I'm going to give them a little bit of a break for the Dolby sound deal, so 3.75 out of 10, and yeah, that's it. Sorry, Harry Manfredini, not a fan of this soundtrack. 3.75 for the sound design onto the acting. I have a positive note, then I have three negative notes and a neutral note, and then I'll just I'll cover the main gang kind of overall with a couple of things and after that. The good note here is the rabbit from the beginning of the movie. I give it a 10 out of 10 for sitting still while being held and at times not being held by Harold. Um, good job, rabbit. The bad notes. Number one, Shelley's death was really pathetic. Talked about that. Number two, I'm not sure where to put this, but it bugs me, so I'm going to blame it on the actress for not ad-libbing. Although we don't actually see her saying the words, so it could be an editorial problem. One of the guys is yo-yoing above his girlfriend's face. He smacks her in the face with a yo-yo, and she says, that was close. No, 
It wasn't close. It, it was a direct hit. On to the third bad note. Uh, the chemistry between Christine and the old man is horrible. I blame it on him. He just doesn't have uh, the most expression or energy, hint, hint. On to the neutral. The girl taking a shower does a really weird job of taking a shower. There is no soap in her hands, yet she keeps rubbing her body down like she has soap. And she looks like she's looking into a mirror, but there's no mirror, so it's, I don't know, it's awkward. I don't, I don't know if she's just following direction or what, but it stands out. Now, the important stuff, the OG7 in the van are to varying degrees, I'll say, solid B actors. A bit stiff at times, but some of them really only have moments on screen. The movie is so fragmented that they get very few chances to actually kind of show off acting chops for an entire scene. So a little hard to rate them, um, you know, too good or too bad in either direction. Christine, the final girl, she gets extended time, obviously. And she could have taken a scream or two a notch further. But other than that, she seems to be following the direction from the director really well. I may not always agree with a reaction, but she sells them regardless. Like, what reaction she's emoting, I might not always agree with, but she sells it. Let me quick point out that um, what is to come here is a continuous note that I wrote stream of conscious here, so that's why it's going to sound like it does. There is fear in her face when she's afraid. Disgust when disgusted. Feigned aggression when scared, but on the attack. You, You can see... Even secondary emotions, I guess we'll call it, within her character. I'll take a quick moment in the middle of analyzing her throughout the final act to mention that I really miss not having access to a commentary for this movie, commentary track. I would have been really curious to hear insights on it. I bring that up because soon in the movie, Christine is going to swing a shovel at, as I called it in the walkthrough, 20% power to knock Jason in the head. I have to assume that it was not a prop shovel, and that's why she's so dainty with the hit. But that moment gets a D from her, and it helps to keep her overall performance below a B plus for me. Sort of a funny moment happens where I think Jason's stunt performer had to improvise. When the two reach the barn in the final fight, he lifts a shovel which was acting as a lock on the big barn door, and it ends up landing upright which is kind of beautiful, but I doubt was supposed to happen. So, when Jason gets in and uses a big block of wood as the lock, as it would be intended for, you know, those, just a big 4 by 4 across the door, the shovel is now in the way because it landed upright, and it's just a really smooth adjustment that uh, Richard Booker, the actor for Jason, does with the wood in one hand to remove the shovel and just keep the scene going. It's, uh, you know, smooth, and I'm sure unplanned. To finish up Christine's analysis, real quick here, there is a moment where she's looking around and thinking, and she portrays that well too. All in all, she is hitting the proper notes as she's asked to. That's the end of that stream of conscious dialogue. One more acting note before the score. There aren't a whole lot of side characters, but the few there are are noticeably worse than the main cast. So, Christine's B+. Um, obviously, that's going to kind of get weighted more heavily than some of the other actors in this. Uh, Booker, Jason's actor, brings that up to like an A-, minus, but then mm, sidecast. <laughs> it's not an easy one. I'm like at a four something, plus the bunny bumps it up. Just a notch. So 4.8 out of 10 for the acting, I suppose. Might be a little generous. Production design. 
for some reason, Harold's wife is um, a really attractive 20-something-year-old that they tried ugling up to match him better, to make a more fitting mate for Harold. But um, I don't think that they quite exceeded in both aging her or making her look ugly. Not well enough, at least. As far as their place of residence goes, it is sufficiently grimy and messy, etc. to fit the characters and... It all gives off this exaggerated but believable aura. And same with the cabin that, you know, a lot of the movie is shot in and the barn. It all looks believable. It's good. Uh, the harpoon through the eye makeup is off. It's not great. Don't love it. There's some blood that drips on the Fangoria magazine. It's too bright. It's not viscous enough. And then, obviously, the eyes popping out. I hated that. I don't know what the hell they were thinking with that. Um, when Jason is hanged, you can see the harness that's used to prevent him from actually being hanged. That's good that they didn't actually hang the actor, but uh, try to hide that harness a little better, so a bit of a knock there. All in all, I uh, just said that the sets look good. The location, unfortunately, doesn't feel like the other movies, but after learning about the effort that they went through and why they weren't able to film on the East Coast like the other movies were, I'm going to be a little less harsh on them for that issue. And um, I think maybe I was a little harsh on some things. For instance, Jason, I said I hate his look, but it is done quite well in the movie. Like the makeup, the special effects on his face are, they're not bad on a technical level. They're good on a technical level. I just don't like the look, which means I kind of don't like any of Jason's looks when his mask is off. This movie's special effects were done by the same Sam, I think it is, Winston, as um, who did part of part two, went on to open up Winston Studios and have a wonderful career in special effects. I'm just less than impressed with a lot of what is in this movie. Um, I think a lot of it seems rushed, I guess. So, let's see. There are some things that I, I, I say are gruesome, like the nut split guy and the raptors. It's, I paused right on that, and maybe they should have held on that just a little longer in the movie, because that's probably one of the better ones. So, in the end, I'm going to give production design a 6.9 out of 10. I would understand any arguments that would say that I'm too low, and same with the reverse. I might be a little too high on that. 6.9 out of 10. Uh, moving on to the enjoyability rating. For enjoyability, I start with a 10 out of 10, and then I go from there. Thank Give the movie the benefit of the doubt to start with. So let's see how these notes impact the score as I kind of just go down them. I have six notes that I have written, uh, maybe seven actually, and I will adjust accordingly after. Number one note, it takes me until around 45 minutes into the movie after the biker gang is dealt with to settle into the movie, to feel like I'm actually watching one cohesive story that I am invested in. It shouldn't take that long for me to get interested in a movie. That said, part of the first 45 minutes are also made it as my favorite scene. So I was going to have this down into five, and then I thought about that fact. So down to a 7.5 for enjoyability. On to note number two, the issues with ambiance and the sound design, the odd structure, just kind of everything that I've complained about here, bringing that all down to one, just make for a very oddly paced, rather slow moving movie at times at least. No changes to the score, though, because I do think that those have all already contributed towards, um, at the very least, that first note's deduction. Number three, Shelly backing into the biker's bikes makes me laugh, and there is a sense of pride for him when he double taps the bikes. Although, like I mentioned, it's a weak double tap. So we'll just give it a little bump up, and we'll call it an eight. On to note four, several times characters react to something that I didn't hear or see in the movie. 
this is kind of a big issue, and it goes hand in hand with the scenes being targeted to the characters in the movie instead of towards the audience on far too many character um, occasions. So I'm going to push the score down to a 5.75, kind of a big deduction there. I'm going to wrap uh, two notes into one. That's why I said six or seven notes here. So um, first one's quick. I hate pretty much everything about this version of Jason. Uh, I think I referenced it like I had said that already earlier. My bad. Uh, yeah, I don't care for this, Jason. No, I did talk about that. I, I mentioned in the past that um, what I love possibly the most about this franchise is the quaint spring or summer camp vibes that several of the entries provide. I actually thought about that last night, and I guess it's only like four of the movies really have that camp vibe, but this movie has none of that. And it is sorely missing for me. Both of those things, Jason and the vibe, the camp vibe, are kind of a big deal. And I should say that the word hate feels strong, so I will hold back and only knock the score down to a four here, as I think that these factors have influenced some other ratings in some way or another. So um, down to a four. And then, just a heads up for a good laugh, if you ever watch this movie... Please take notice of how much salt the stoner chick puts on the popcorn. It's um, it's a quick moment before the scene cuts, so you have to catch it rather quickly. So here you go. The timestamp that you want to start at to catch that would be probably 1 hour, 6 minutes, 18 seconds, give or take a little bit there. I wrote that note down, so it must be worth something. So I'm going to bring it up to a 4.2. That's all the notes. And a little more adjustment here. I'm going to give it a bump. Um, up for being much more entertaining when watching it in 3D. And also, some people like the tone of this movie. It is zany and it is fun in some ways. And, you know, that's a lot of what I liked about part six and I think what I've liked about this in the past. So I'm actually going to give it a 5.9 out of 10 for enjoyability. I think that's fair. And on to what would I rate this movie in comparison to other horror slash slasher flicks? I wasn't sure where to put this first note. So here's where it landed. And it's about the biker uh, gang or the biker himself who comes back at the end of the movie, which I just find it's a bit odd. Either Jason hacked away at his wrist earlier on and just considered him dead, which to be fair would have, I think I alluded to that earlier, and that probably would have killed him in this movie with what people die from. Or Jason slammed through his head with the machete, like I think is happening in that scene. And in either case, in this case, the biker was somehow able to come back looking pretty darn healthy. It's either his hand, arm, or face that's getting whacked by a machete, and I'm seeing two hands, two arms, a full head on him, really no marks, so... Ah, continuity error, I guess. I don't understand what the damage would have been earlier on in the movie. It's it's kind of bad. On to note number two here. Despite the creators doing a poor job with creating tension, trying to do it too much, and having too many fake-outs that you know are fake-outs without that method ever really paying off, where you kind of get surprised when you're expecting there to be another fake-out, but then it's not a fake-out, Despite that, the movie is not tensionless. There are a lot of moments of tension, though nowhere near to the level that was intended by the creators. Nowhere near to that. Generally, 
I felt like none of the creators quite knew where they wanted to go with this movie, with the greater story, and I think there are legitimate reasons behind that. Some good excuses for that, some that I'm writing into maybe the production process that may have been good excuses, but also may not be good excuses, um, as to some of the reasons why it may feel more like um, like they didn't know where to go than it had to, etc. But in the end, for this rating, I do have to stick to what we got on screen. I can't really forgive them for anything, I guess. So, you know, it's a pretty middling option at best to throw on as a movie. And if we're speaking horror, I don't think that it's very successful. So I've actually bumped up my enjoyability score to the score that you heard just a touch to help offset this score, because I'm going to give it a 3 out of 10 in comparison to the rest of the horror genre. That was not a thoughtless bump up to the enjoyability rating just to like even the score out or something. It was just a retroactive thought once I got to this rating. I'm like, well, I enjoy the movie more not as a horror flick than I do as a horror flick. All right. One last note before finding out the official score. I think that the editing hurt this movie. In the end, it is always tough to say for sure whether it did or it did not. I talked about some of this in the writing portion already, but... Also, the timing of certain effects and other things just led me to believe that it could have been edited better. That's why I'm holding the editor accountable. And, well, that's why I'm going to have an overall deduction for the editing to this final score. As I also stated in the walkthrough, there will be a deduction for the choice not to use point of view shots and instead keeping Jason, uh, you know, in the shot itself. However... In the interesting facts portion, I have something that will reduce how much I'm deducting from the overall score for editing and that, which would have been um, a six-tenths of a point deduction. So instead, I'm just going to knock it down 0.52 points. Now, let's recap those scores all out of 10. Let's go. Writing, I gave it a 3 out of 10. Cinematography, 5. Sound design, 3.75. Acting, 4.8. Production design, 6.9. Enjoyability rating, 5.9. In comparison to other slasher flicks, a 3. Those scores all average out to a 4.61. I do keep that six digit, uh, the third digit there behind the decimal on record in case of any future ties, but uh, 4.62 minus the 0.52 for the editing. And the official podcast score for Friday the 13th Part 3 is a... 4.1 out of 10. Interesting facts portion. With no commentary track to gain extra insights, I decided to also watch a documentary specifically about this movie, which came out in 2017. It can be found on YouTube in its full length, and it is titled Friday the 13th Part 3, The Memoriam Documentary. It has better ratings than the movie for what it's worth. I have to say, my experience of watching it felt uh, very much like those films that are shown at museums in that one room that has, you know, a little theater, and then there's one or there's three films that are just cycling over and over in there. I feel like every museum has that room. Whether that's worth a rating that is higher than the movie itself, I'll leave that up to you. So let's go through what I thought was interesting from, from that documentary before going to some of the internet information that I learned. The filming was plagued with catastrophe after catastrophe, like bees raiding the cabin that they were shooting in, which cost them an entire day of filming. 
There were many other, I don't know about many, but there were several other catastrophes that they show in the documentary too. It was filmed in the Santa Clarita River Valley, which helps to explain why it doesn't feel like they are anywhere near Crystal Lake. It is obviously a very different topography from the East Coast where the previous films were made. It was the highest grossing 3D film when it was released, so it was very popular at the time. Although not for all audiences, of course, as one of the actors tells his experience of going to see it with a dozen of his family members who, as he says, all got up and left once his character died. Richard Booker, the actor who played Jason, was actually in the circus as a trapeze artist when he was younger, and as the legend goes from someone who met him back around that time period when he told her he was leaving the circus to work the oil fields, what he had meant to say was that he was running away because the ringmaster found out that his wife was having an affair with Richard Booker. So he ran away. So the ringmaster didn't kill him. The hockey mask was actually an accident that came out of necessity as the makeup for Jason wasn't ready in time for a shoot. My voice is starting to go. Apparently, the lake in the movie is supposed to be Crystal Lake. I assumed Crystal Lake was just nearby, and I don't know how I feel about that. It feels like not Crystal Lake to me, and I don't think it's ever referred to as being Crystal Lake in the movie. I would argue that it isn't Crystal Lake. In April of 2006, there was a group of four trespassers on the property where this movie was shot, which is a standard shooting location that Hollywood uses from time to time, or did previously at least. Story goes, after being stranded nearby, the group went to the cabin to keep warm for the night, started a fire in the fireplace, and burnt the place down. There are reasons to believe it may not have been an accident, though. That's all the notes from the documentary onto online stuff that I found. The original plan for the movie involved Ginny from part two being confined to a psychiatric hospital, and I have to assume the idea of going back to that plan may explain the ending of part three. They didn't go through with this plan as the actress for Ginny, Amy Steele, declined the role, but there is a universe out there where Amy is the Jamie Lee Curtis of their horror fandom. If you're not familiar, productions will often film under fake titles in order to keep people off of the scent of a popular property that's in the middle of production. In the case of Part 3, the fake title was Crystal Japan, named after a David Bowie song. It became a bit of a tradition to use David Bowie's song's titles as the fake names for Friday the 13th productions, so in the future, maybe remember that. A huge reason for the production being done in California instead of on the East Coast was because they needed the technical expertise of Hollywood experts for the, at the time, new 3D technology. I saw a note stating that the original intent was to imply Jason sexually assaulted Christine's character as this was to be the last um, movie in the franchise, and they wanted audiences to be happy with Jason's demise. But... How is that not implied with what we got in this movie? It's very obvious what is being implied, but I guess there was more that was cut. I just thought that was interesting. It's not considered to be a part of Jason's lore based on what we got in the movie, even though how else are you supposed to interpret that abduction scenario as presented? And now that I think about it, that little slip up in the movie of was it one year or two years since Christine and the old man had last seen each other, 
Is that possibly a course correction for some storyline where Christine's baby was going to be Jason's baby? Main issue is she's not showing at all, but there's also zero reason to believe it's the old man's baby, so like, why was that in the movie at all? It has to be a storyline that got cut from scripts, but pieces of it made it through. One is left wondering, that's all I'm saying. I found this very interesting, and I actually went back and reduced the amount that I docked the entire production for the editing to give the production credit for not making this obvious. The movie was filmed during the months of January and February. It was not warm spring weather yet, and several night shots had to be cut down due to the actor's breath being visible. I appreciate that. Paramount had to spend up to 8 to $10 million to get Part 3 into over 1,000 theaters. Those costs were due to having to provide proper lenses, silver screens, projectionist training, and establishing a 24-hour hotline for theaters when the theaters would encounter any issues with the 3D technology. I did not talk about this moment in the walkthrough, but Edna, from the early portion of the film, she sees Jason from inside before she sees him for the second time, which is the time that I brought up in the walkthrough. Anyway, the first time she sees him, he's in the clothes that he was in in part two. Then, when Edna goes outside, there is a pair of pants and a shirt that are missing from the clothesline. I believe they are the clothes that Jason attempted to be hiding behind. So, you know, to make it more obvious for the audience to catch this. But I, myself, I've never caught that. And this goes right into my critique about them giving a cause or showing every last little thing in this movie. All the little details that they included. There are very few things in the movie you can point to and say, how did that get there? Or why did that happen? It wasn't set up. You know, 90% of the things are set up well, aside from a few big things, which I, I mostly covered, which ones stand out. So back to the main point, the clothes that Jason hides behind are the clothes that he changes into for the rest of the film and actually for most of, if not the rest of his movie career. I'll toss in a sillier fact here in between two that were a little more serious and here it goes. Tracy Savage would later say that she felt very uncomfortable performing her nude scenes, but said she is now able to look back in fondness because of how great her body used to be. And, Tracy, if you were to ever hear this, you should know that at least as of the time of your interview in the Memoriam documentary, you still look great. I actually thought, oh wow, she still looks like the same person. And it's true. I mean, a lot of times you don't see an actor, you know, you see an actor 30 years later and you haven't followed their career or they haven't had a career for 30 years. You see them, you don't recognize them. You're like, who was that? I saw you. I'm like, oh, I know which one that is. You've done a wonderful job of staying healthy and youthful over some 30 odd years since this was filmed. Props to you. On to our last fun fact and then we are done. So I will say goodbye for now and thanks for tuning in as always. In short, and quite obviously, the reason for the movie being in 3D is that they felt they needed a gimmick after feeling that audiences caught on to the formula from the first two movies. I have three pieces of commentary on that. Number one, this helps to make sense of why the movie is so heavily gimmicky. Obviously, execs were sitting there chattering into the ears of the creative team about making sure that there was enough gimmick. Number two. This movie ha was highly successful for Paramount. It's hard to say that doing the gimmick was the wrong call. 
They made a lot of money. Number three, I gave the movie a lot of crap for the gimmick, and those first two points are my apology to all those involved in creating this movie. As I've stated, people who see it in 3D say that the experience is 10 times better, and the creatives had their hands tied, and they have a lot of reasons to excuse some of the more lame 3D moments, and the movie was a success on the business end, so... Who am I to critique an all-around success story in Friday the 13th, Part 3?